Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Engineering Student Experience Podcast. I'm Paul Nissenson from the Mechanical Engineering Department at Cal Poly Pomona. Well, it's been a few months since I've last released an episode. In a prior episode, I mentioned that my mechanical engineering program would be getting a visit from our accreditation agency, ABET, in October, which was a couple months ago. That's October of 2023 for those of you catching up on old episodes. Preparing for the ABET visit consumed a lot of my time this semester, and I had to put the podcast on hold for a bit. Unfortunately, the visit seemed to go well, and we expect to be reaccredited for another six years. So that was a big relief, and now I have more free time to work on projects like this podcast. One of the main reasons I started this podcast about five years ago was to help high school students get a better idea of what becoming an engineer is all about. Many aspiring engineering students have only a vague idea of the types of classes they will take in college and the full range of career options available to them once they graduate. Most high school students, and even many current engineering students, are not aware that some engineering jobs require that the engineer is professionally licensed in the region where they are performing their work. In the U.S., every state and territory has an entity called a board that is responsible for overseeing the licensure of engineers and other professionals in that region. For example, California has an entity called the California Board for Professional Engineers, Land Surveyors, and Geologists. A typical pathway for an engineer to become professionally licensed involves obtaining a four-year degree from an ABET-accredited engineering program, passing the Fundamentals of Engineering exam, also called the FE exam, around the time of graduation, having several years of experience as a practicing engineer, and then passing the Principles and Practice of Engineering exam, which is also called the PE exam. Joining me today to discuss the topic of professional licensure is Davey McDowell, who is the Chief Operating Officer of the National Council of Examiners for Engineering and Surveying, also called NCEES for short. NCEES is an organization that assists states and territories in the professional licensure process. As Davey mentions in the interview, there are three E's to professional licensure, education, experience, and exams. The education is usually obtained by attending an ABET-accredited engineering program, and the experience is obtained by working under the supervision of more experienced engineers for several years. Exams are where NCEES really helps out. The organization administers the FE exam and PE exam, which are the national exams required for professional licensure. These two exams are recognized by all states and territories, which helps facilitate the movement of engineers across the country. During the interview, Davey discusses what the FE exam and PE exam are like, when it's recommended to take the exams, and tips for preparing for the exams. He mentions resources that are available from NCEES, such as sample FE and PE exams, and the reference handbooks used in the exams. Davey also discusses the types of engineering jobs that typically require professional licensure. One thing that stood out to me during the interview is Davey's recommendation that all engineering students should consider taking the FE exam around the time of graduation, even if they think they won't need to be professionally licensed during their career. Engineers who earn their undergraduate degrees in their early 20s likely will work for at least 30 more years, probably longer, and you really can't predict how your interests and career will evolve over time. You may start your engineering career at a job that doesn't require professional licensure, but 10, 15 years later, you may become interested in a job that does require professional licensure 
and it can be difficult to relearn all the concepts from your undergraduate courses in preparing for the FE exam. It reminded me of a former student, Gerardo Maldonado, who was interviewed back in episodes 13 and 22. Gerardo decided to take the FE exam around the time of completing his mechanical engineering degree, even though he didn't have a particular career in mind at the time. While Gerardo passed the FE exam, and this ultimately helped him get hired at a water utility agency. So now let's hear from Davey McDowell. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, I'm here with Davey McDowell, who is the Chief Operating Officer of the National Council of Examiners for Engineering and Surveying, or NCEES for short. And today we're going to be talking all about professional licensure. Well, Davey, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, before we talk about the world of professional licensure, I think it'd be helpful for the listeners to get a little bit of background about yourself. So, you know, what did you do before joining NCEES? I see you have a PE license or a PE designation after your name. So I'm curious to see, were you a practicing engineer at some point or, or currently still? And what do you do currently in your role at NCES? Yeah, so the, the answer to a lot of those questions is yes. Um, I am a professional engineer. I'm licensed in the state of South Carolina. Um, as, as you'll come, as we, as we discuss things throughout the next little while, you'll come to find that that's one of those nuances about professional engineering licensure is those particular licenses are handed down by each individual state. So a lot of times um, when someone says they're a professional engineer, they are designated that by a state uh, or, or jurisdiction. Um, but so my, my background, to go back in time, I uh, spent about 10 years after I'd graduated from Clemson University in engineering, uh, working for a local utility power company. And during that time frame is, is when I became a licensed engineer, went through the process of getting experience, um, taking the professional engineering exam, um, go back a little bit even more in time. I was uh, probably in my last semester of school when I took the fundamentals of engineering exam or the FE exam. Uh, so passed the FE, graduated from uh, Clemson University, like I said, and then uh, started um, and, and worked for uh, a utility company for about 10 years before I um, changed jobs and, and uh, started with NCEES. Um, with NCEES, I uh, started out in exam development. So if, if you know much about NCEES, uh, we have a number of services that um, we offer to the states as they're licensing engineers and surveyors. But our primary, I guess, service and what we're probably more known for than anything else is, is the examination. So the fundamentals of engineering exam or the principles and practice of engineering exam. We shorten those typically to FE and PE. But uh, my first job at NCWS was developing uh, some of the professional engineering exams. Uh, through time, I've changed jobs a few times here at NCWS. I kind of worked in our what we call member services um, and what we call our records department, which is a a service that we offer boards where we put all of your credentials on file at one time and, and can transmit them. I worked a little bit in marketing and outreach, so I was able to go to uh, universities all over the country and kind of preach and, and teach at the same time about the uh, virtues of uh, licensure and the, talked about the FE exam and why you should take it while you're in school and those kind of things. And then moved into really this uh, role of the chief operating officer. How about eight years ago. And in that role, I primarily uh, work with our board of directors 
as well as the 50 states and five jurisdictions and um, trying to help them in any kind of uh, facet as it relates to, to either engineering or surveying licensure. Yeah. So when you were going out and giving those talks at, at colleges, how did you describe professional licensure to them? And why, why did you tell them that it was important? A couple of the things, and, and I'll, uh, I'll hit a couple of different pieces, but I'll, I'll go back a little bit in time and years ago. So probably around the year 2000. So this is, so we're talking about years ago that a lot of uh, students wouldn't even been, a, you know, been born at this point in life. Um, at this point in time, anyway, we were talking about moving the fundamentals of engineering exam into a computer-based test. And so we went to a lot of students and we asked the students, it's like, oh, how would you like to take this exam on a computer versus sitting down with, you know, a thousand of your friends and taking it on this given Saturday in October or April? And so we thought we were going to get some information back about that. And what we got back was something like, what is this FE exam you're talking about? And so we realized we had a, a, a different problem uh, or a different issue to tackle. And so from that point on, the early 2000s, probably to 2010, and even still today, we really kind of launched into an effort to try to educate students on not only what the FE exam or the fundamentals exam really is, but also about engineering or surveying licensure. For the most part, the the outreach that I did at the universities was at engineering schools. And so we were trying to answer, or I was trying to answer questions at, uh, you know, what was the FE exam like and what's going to be covered on it and things like that. But at the same time, talking about professional licensure, because uh, the FE is just essentially step one towards obtaining a professional engineering license. Uh, we talk about three E's to professional licensure, education, experience, and exams. And so as part of uh, kind of the outreach piece, we were mostly talking about exams, but we also, because at that point in time, when you're talking to students on campus, they're already getting the education piece. It may not be done yet, but they're in the, pro you know, they're in the process there. Uh, talk about the exams and then talk about the experience, and then in the end, kind of talk about what professional licensure is. And to some extent, the, though it's a really kind of a basic comparison, a lot of times I'll compare it to just, you know, having a driver's license. You know, some entity, a state, has deemed you competent enough to drive. And they've, when they say that you're competent enough to drive, feel like you are going to not adversely harm the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Uh, so the same thing can be said about engineering licensure. There's just different steps to it. So whereas in a driver's license, they say, you know, you got to be a certain age, you got to pass a test, you got to have some mentorship or experience with an adult. Then you take another test, a driver's test, and then they hand you this little piece of paper that says this is your driver's license. You are uh, you've been deemed competent to not <laughs> adversely impact the health, safety and welfare of the public. Whether that's really true or not, I'm not sure in driving <laughs> driver's license, but it, the same thing happens in the, an engineering license. You have to have those certain pieces that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, it's the experience. It's the exams. It's the education. And at some point, the state, whether whatever that 50 states or five jurisdictions of the United States, hands you really a piece of paper and says, you're licensed, you're now competent, uh, and your role is to safeguard the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Uh, so 
whether it is in engineering, whether it's in accounting, uh, a medical field, nursing, I, you, just, you can name them all, architectural. There's a lot of professional licensure. It is really just that. It's it's a legal thing, and it is a uh, a license that says you're able to go practice engineering or you'll be able to go practice uh, nursing or accounting or whatever um, profession you may be in. Yeah, so you've mentioned how the first step is taking the FE exam. Can you take us through the entire process that someone would go through, starting with the FE exam, all the way until they're professionally licensed, and then maybe even after they're professionally licensed, things that they have to do to keep that license? Right. So, and I mentioned those three kind of E's earlier, um, you know, education experience exams. The the one thing that it kind of keeps us on our toes with at NCEES, uh, we're the national organization that essentially um, assist all of the states in handing out licenses. So we have a national exam so that once you've passed one of these exams, you don't have to take them in a different state. Um, those kinds of things. The process does does change or vary a little bit from state to state. So while we have a, a gold standard, so to speak, is what I'll speak to, there are always a few nuances or varying ways that a, a different a, another state may do it um, differently than an adjoining state or even a state that's 2,000 miles away, so to speak. The, the gold standard, what we call engineer, for engineering licensure, is to have an ABET accredited uh, engineering degree, four years of experience, pass both the fundamentals of engineering and the principles and practice of engineering exams, and, um, and then to some extent have no uh, ethical violations on your, say, your, so your record. So the process is typically in and around graduation from an accredited program, uh, an ABET accredited program. You would take the fundamentals of engineering exam, say you pass that exam and you start work. Um, your The next four years is where you are gaining your progressive engineering experience. And a lot of times you'll hear the words progressive engineering experience. Essentially, that just kind of means you're growing in your role or your jobs, you know, so that you're not doing the exact same thing on day one as you would be on, you know, four years later. So this typically this four years of experience. And then there's the professional engineering exam. So that's when you would take that particular exam. And once you pass that exam, you could be then licensed by an individual state. Now, those three pieces, though, don't necessarily have to fall sequentially. They, they, they're kind of like three buckets that you just have to fill, right? So you have to fill that bucket that's education, and that's your engineering accredited degree. And then you need four years of experience, and then you need these two exams. For the most part, they don't have to be sequential in nature, but most people follow that pattern of graduation and taking the FE exam close to graduation working for some time period before they take the PE exam. So that time period can vary. But when it's all said and done, when you want to be licensed, the the goal standard would be pass the FE, graduate from an accredited program, four years experience, pass the PE, and then you're licensed. I see. So if someone gets licensed or they're licensed in California, 
and they want to go move to Iowa or Texas, do they have to then go get relicensed in those states? Yes, but that's a that's kind of going back to my my driver's uh, license analogy or early on. If if I get my driver's license and I'm located in South Carolina and I get my driver's license here in South Carolina and I feel like driving to California to visit some of my favorite friends out on the West Coast, I can get in my car and I can leave on, you know, um, whichever I-85 and I go into Georgia and then I can pick up I-20 and I can go through all of the states, you know, Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, till I eventually go through New, what, New Mexico, Arizona and get to, to, to California, say. And nobody ever cares that I did that. The states in all of those between South Carolina and California never really care about my driver's license as long as I'm not really breaking a law. The big difference between an engineering license and a driver's license is if I want to offer my services in any one of those states other than South Carolina, I do have to get licensed in each one of those states. Um, so that it's a state's rights issue. Uh, it's just the way it has been for oh almost 100 years now. Um, engineering licensure laws took uh, started oddly, I guess oddly, I think it's odd, uh, in Wyoming in 1907 and quickly spread across the country by the 20s. And um, so for 100 years now, NCWS has been around trying to help facilitate mobility of engineers and surveyors, engineers across the country. And so we do that uh, through some of the services that we offer. The national exams are one of those. But yes, if I want to, uh, if I want to work in in the state of Georgia or Alabama or Louisiana, all the way to California, I do have to get licensed in each one of those states. And you can be licensed in multiple states simultaneously. Yes, um, we've actually known some folks, or I've met some folks that have been licensed in all fifty states. It was just this past weekend at a meeting uh, with somebody that was licensed in thirty-five states. So. A lot of that happens, you know, depending on the type of job you have um, and and the work that you're doing. If you're working for a, you know, a large, uh, say, consulting engineering firm, chances are you're going to be licensed in multiple states. Earlier, you mentioned also that the, for most people or the traditional route is to you know get your education at an ABET accredited institution. This is fresh on my mind because we just finished up our, our ABET visit here. <laughs> I think everything went well. Do you have to have a degree from an institution to get professionally licensed? So that is a um, that is another one of those answers uh, or questions that gets uh, an answer of it depends, <laughs> and we do that quite often. And it's mostly because of the 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 variancing uh, the varying requirements in each individual state. So the gold standard is having an engineering degree. There are some states that do not require a degree, but you usually have to offset that with more years of experience, but you almost always have to pass the exams as well. And to be honest, I'm not saying that if you don't have a degree, you can't pass the exams because that's, that's, I am sure there are people that can do it. Um, there are a lot of smart people that don't have a college degree. The FE exam, though, is a test of knowledge that you should have learned uh, or you should have gained while you were in college. So the FE exam really is based on the coursework that you are taking, right? So I had to take, you know, calculus in my engineering program at school. Well, we're going to test you on that. 
had to take statics and dynamics and I took engineering mechanics and I took fluids and I took all of these thermodynamics, all whatever, whatever curriculum for whatever discipline you want to throw in there. That's what the FE exam is, is testing. So while it's still possible, and I'm not saying it's impossible, it, I feel like it'd be very difficult to pass that exam without some base engineering degree, or at least if you had a related science degree. And I, when I say related science, it might be a, a chemistry or a physics or something like that. And you paired it with some engineering classes, you could probably get through. But I still think it would be, uh, it's just a little more difficult because like I said, the FE exam uh, is going to look like your college curriculum. And while we're on the, the topic of the FE exam, what is the entire experience like for a student? So, you know, imagine they, they, they come into an office where they can take the test. What are they going to be experiencing during that day when they take that exam? Yeah, so things have changed over the years and the experience that I may have had back in the whatever late 80s, which seems like forever ago now, um, is obviously different than what somebody had in the early 2000s to what they have today. Uh, today's world, it's a computer-based test. And typically for an FE examinee, what you would do is you have to register with NCWS. So you would log on or uh, go to the NCWS website and go through the process of setting up an account, which is all essentially free to do. Uh, once you have established your account and said, you know what, I want to take this FE exam, then you would choose the state in which you are um, either residing or you're thinking about where you would eventually like to get licensed. Again, the, the exam's national, so it doesn't matter where you choose to some extent. But what that does is it sets you on a path of, uh, if I chose California, for example, um, I would almost, not immediately, but pretty quickly receive an email back saying you can log into the system and pick a date and time to take the exam. And uh, the exam's given essentially year-round based on test center availability. Uh, we use a Pearson View test center network. So um, there is, uh, you do have to go to a test center to take the exam. You can't take it from your dorm room or office or anything like that. You have to take it at this uh, one of the test centers. Um, so once you, you do that and you pick a date and time to take the exam, you show up to the test center. And of course, there's some rules and things that you have to follow, obviously. There's a calculator policy, but we have a, uh, a document that kind of steps you through any of the things that you need to do uh, for the exam and for exam, uh, exam day kind of uh, getting ready for it. Uh, when you take the exam, uh, you should have at least a 24-inch monitor. I think that's the screen size that we have um, designated. And as an examinee, you're going to have the FE reference handbook on one side of the screen and the questions on the other side of the screen. So the FE exam is a supplied reference handbook. Uh, it's a, oh gosh, three, 400 page uh, document that has all of the different uh, disciplines of engineering reference materials in it. Anything from formulas to tables and graphs and charts and those things like that. Anything that you would need to work the exam questions is in that reference handbook. So as an examinee, you're going to have the reference book on one side of the screen, the questions on the other, and then you just make your way through uh, 110 questions. There's a break in the middle, and there's, uh, there's obviously a few other things that are going on besides you just sitting there answering questions. But for the most part, uh, there's 110 questions, and uh, five hours and 15 or 20 minutes worth of actual 
test time. Uh, we normally block out six hours at a test center so that you can take a break, can go outside, get some fresh air, you know, grab some water or a snack, something like that. So once you finish the exam, usually in about five to seven days, you are given your results. So it's a lot quicker than it was way, way back when, when it was in a paper and pencil format and you had to scan answer sheets and do those things. Yeah. And when, uh, if, to say a student doesn't pass the exam, how soon again can they take it? Can they take it uh, an infinite number of times or, well, not infinite, but, you know, can they take it many, well, many times? Yeah. <laughs> um, so generally speaking, unless a state has some um, requirement or rule in place, uh, the only the only thing that keeps you from taking it, that, that would be the only thing that could keep you from taking it as many times as you want. I don't know of any states that really have that for the FE exam. The only requirement or rule that's in place is an exam policy that we have, which, which says you can only take the exam once every quarter and only three times in a given year. And so that particular policy is in, in place so that if in, in the quarters are just, you know, January, February, March, you know, April, May, June kind of thing, they are in there for exam security. Um, though our pools of questions are quite large, if you were to take, you couldn't just take the exam, you know, every week because eventually you're going to start seeing questions over and over again. So the, the policy is really in place for exam security more than anything else. When do you recommend that students take the uh, FE exam as it relates to their education? So I believe the mechanical engineering FE exam has like 14 subject areas covering, you know, across the entire curriculum. So it wouldn't make sense for a student to take it in their second year of college. I know that you took it, I believe, in your last year of college. I think you mentioned that. I know that's very common for our students. Is there kind of like a sweet spot where you'd recommend that students take it where they should have enough knowledge by then, but it's not so far away from the last class that they took that they've forgotten a lot of the knowledge. I typically have always recommended in and around graduation. Um, and part of that, and, and I know it's tough because typically that last semester of school, you're, you're taking, you know, 400 level classes. <laughs> you know, I was trying to graduate. You know, that was my sole goal. You might have uh, an I internship. Had to, you know, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> find a job. You know, there was all of those things going on. So it's a difficult time. So I, I get that um, from a student's perspective. But in and around graduation has always been what I think is a sweet spot. And the reason I say that for a couple of reasons, one of them is, while your senior year in school, if you were taking these 400 level classes, three and 400 level classes, those are challenging classes. I They just are, right? So you're in that time frame. And in that kind of uh, mindset of studying and uh, working problems and thinking through solutions to problems and those kinds of things. And I feel like that's the time when you should take the exam. Uh, you're just in that mode. Uh, you've just finished. If you think about from the mechanical engineering side of things, maybe you've just finished a couple of uh, a second course in machine design or maybe a second thermo or a. Uh, uh, an advanced fluids class, any of those kinds of classes that you're taking, you know, combustion turbines, any of those kinds of things, um, finishing up that in your senior year, you are now stepping into an exam that's going to test you a lot on those things. So I, I think you're just really preparing yourself for the exam when you're taking those senior level classes. And you know that senior level classes build off of 
junior level classes that build off of sophomore level classes that build off of freshman level classes. So uh, it, it, it's you're really preparing yourself for the exam, I think, during that senior year. My warning a little bit, though, is if you wait and, and we see this, this is this is a trend in today's FE exam world for what it's worth. We're seeing more engineering graduates wait to take the exam like instead of I'm just going to take it in case I need it. It's more like I'm going to take it when I'm somewhat forced to take it. Right. So all of a sudden an employer says, you know, you need to get licensed and you go, oh, well, I need to go take this exam. I kind of not warn. Warn's probably too strong a word, but I, I would strongly suggest to not think that way because the further you move away from school, the tougher it's going to be to remember some of those things. And especially remember way back when, you know, I, I used to laugh when I would do some of those college visits and I would tell these kids, I'd say, you know what? The last differential equation I solved was on the FE exam, <laughs> you know, and I didn't need it for my job. I'm sure there are some people that do. Don't get me wrong. But I guess the point being, the further you're away from those courses, and that's what you're going to be tested on. I just think it's going to be difficult, more difficult. NCWS has meetings throughout the year with the various states. So like I mentioned early on, we're, NCWS is really made up of the 50 states and five jurisdictions. And these groups get together. And we were in a discussion with a lot of engineers one day, and we were talking about the fact that so many FE examinees today are waiting to take the exam until, you know, after graduation, um, as opposed to taking it, you know, either right before or right at graduation, simply because they're waiting to take the exam uh, to see if they really need it. Um, and one of the things that was mentioned, and I don't know if this is really prevalent everywhere, but there were at least two or three educators in the group that were saying the big difference nowadays is so many students get to that December, January timeframe, going to graduate in May, already have a job. So they may not need to be putting this FE on their resume, so to speak. And and I didn't really, I've never really thought about it that way because most of most of us and, and even some of my, uh, three of my daughters, so I had three daughters all finished in engineering as well. It was later on in that spring semester that they got, you know, job offers. And so they had they decided to take the exam or not take the exam, whatever they wanted to do. Uh, it's kind of up to them, obviously, but at that point. And so I think the need for engineers and the hiring practices to some, some extent can drive some candidate behavior or examinee behavior. But I still want to harp back to the best time to take this is when you're taking these classes. And um, I guess if there's a message for uh, engineering students out there, it's that. You never know which way that career might go, uh, which pathway you might take, and taking this exam in and around when you're taking all of your really high-level courses, I think is the best and the uh, best opportunity to pass the exam. And so, if you pass the FE exam, is there a certain amount of time it's good for? Or is it just good for the rest of your life? I I I don't know of any state that isn't just not good for the rest of your life. It is. Um, once you've graduated, it's kind of it's, it's somewhat like your transcript from school. Once you have it, you've got it, um, and then it's just a matter of building experience and then deciding if and when you're going to take the professional engineering exam. Do you have any best practices for students and um, how to prepare for the exam? And does 
you know, NCES provide um, resources for students beyond that very large reference handbook? So we don't really provide a whole lot of what I would consider preparatory materials. We do put together or put out a sample exam, and that sample exam should give you an idea of what it's going to, what the exam is going to look like on exam day, what the level of difficulty, the types of questions you're going to have. We're constantly trying to evolve our sample exams to be a little bit better. Um, so as I speak today, we, we have uh, somewhat of a book that you would buy, but we are somewhere probably in the next nine to 12 months going to have a, another type of sample exam that'll be a computer-based one that we think will be uh, help students, but it's not out yet. But that's just, that's something that's right now being developed by NCWS um, as well. Um, but the sample exam is about the only preparatory things that we offer. Um, my suggestions have always been, and you you hit it just a minute ago, is while the reference handbook is a searchable PDF, so if I want to find whatever, mock number, I, I type in mock, hit the button, and it'll take me to something about the mock or whatever you want to come up with. Think of a, you know, Manning's equation, anybody, depends on, you know, obviously on your discipline. Uh, it'll take you right there. Having a little bit of a knowledge of where some of those things are, though, I think is important. So being able to look at that reference handbook ahead of time, you can buy a hard copy or you can download a free one from NCWS. It's just a, a PDF file. I think gives you some uh, level of um, either confidence or knowledge of being knowing where to look for things versus trying to do it somewhat, not blindly, but you know, on the fly, so to speak, while you're sitting there taking the exam. So let's say a student uh, gets their degree from an ABED accredited university. They take their uh, uh, FE exam, they pass it, then they spend four years getting experience, and then they come and take the PE exam. What is that exam like? So that exam is going to be, it's going to be different than the FE exam. And, and I mentioned that the FE exam is really a test of the knowledge that you should have gained while you're in school. The PE exam or the principles and practice of engineering, so PE, we shorten it a lot, is really more of an application of those fundamentals or principles. So it's going to be not necessarily what I would consider harder. It's just going to be different. And, and like I said, it's more of an application of those knowledges and skills that you gained while in school and during those years of experience. That the PE exam typically is less questions, so they're a little more complex. So whereas the FE is going to have like 110 questions, the PE exam is sitting around 80 to 90 questions, something like that. So the questions are a little bit more complex because the difference in time is I used I had about uh, five hours and 15 minutes or so to take the FE exam, got about eight hours to take the PE exam. So it's an all day event kind of thing and grueling, right? I mean, it's it, there's some you got to have, uh, obviously, you got to have the knowledge and the ability to take this test, but it's also a little bit of an endurance factor. It's just a long test, but it is m more complicated type problems than you would have found on the FE exam. Uh, but they are uh, questions that should be applying the knowledge that you learned in school as well as on the job. And does uh, NCEES provide you know resources to like a practice exam to help people prepare? 
Yeah, so basically the same thing. We produce sample exams as well as the the reference handbooks that would be used for those exams as well. Everything on a computer-based test, we we have to essentially provide the references for. The computer-based testing centers don't want you bringing in code books or any of the standards uh, books that you may have, depending on you know the the discipline you are uh, within engineering. So we provide not only a reference handbook that's got the equations and graphs and charts and tables and things like that, but we also provide some of the uh, other types of um, standards or building codes or any of those types of things, you know, the National Electric Code, and maybe not the whole thing, but just excerpts that you would need to work questions. So we provide all that uh, along, and it's the same basic setup as you would with the FE exam. You're coming in, you're looking at the screen, the references are on one side, the, the questions on the other. If you go to the Civil Engineering Department's uh, webpage, the faculty webpage uh, at my university, you'll see a lot of faculty members with a PE after their name. But if you go to the mechanical engineering, my department's website, you rarely see that. And so I was just wondering which disciplines, civil engineering, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, aerospace, all of them, which ones uh, is professional licensure typically required the most? And that it would be maybe uh, definitely more of a benefit for students to become professionally licensed in. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it and then I'll answer it differently. <laughs> so I'll answer the So c- civil engineering tends to have more emphasis on professional engineering, but it's not really the discipline that drives whether you need to be a licensed engineer, but the job that you do. So not all engineers have to be licensed engineers. Typically, if you want to sell yourself as an engineer to the public at large for hire, you have to be licensed. So that would be whether you're a mechanical, a chemical, environmental, you know, any any of the engineering disciplines. If you're going to call yourself an engineer and you're going, some member of the public's going to hire me, then you need to be a professional engineer. The other side is, or the other piece of that puzzle is going to be typically if you're doing building um, design work, then you are going to be required to stamp drawings. So then you would also um, need to be licensed. So when you think of the as-built environment, uh, you do tend to think of uh, buildings, roads, bridges, uh, waterways, and a lot of those are developed by civil engineers. So typically, there are going to be more civil engineers that are licensed than, say, any of the other disciplines. But once you get into uh, interior to a building, you're going to have some electrical, you're going to have some you know, power distribution, you're going to have HVAC systems, you're going to have refrigeration systems, you're going to have a lot of things that might be going into an industrial plant that if it's designed by someone outside, they have to be licensed to do it. So most of the time, I say the license doesn't necessarily go with a discipline, it goes with the type of job you have. And and to, to kind of keep on for just another moment, a lot of that deals with the idea of a consumer not really having a choice in terms of what engineered product they have. So so in other words, as a consumer, I can choose uh, whatever kind of car I want to buy. And so I I could, you know, you you start listing out the hundreds of types of car manufacturers and I can look at safety records and I can look at all kinds of things. I can gas mileage. I can look at those kinds of things and make a choice myself as I want to buy this car from because they have this. 
So a lot of the engineers probably with inside that setting were not licensed engineers. They, they were working for a company. And as part of that company, you're, you're buying that. I never got a choice to say, I want Johnny or Susie or whoever to design that bridge. I'm going to drive, I drive over the same bridge twice a day, every day for whatever, how many days of the year I come to work. I didn't have a choice in who did that. So we rely on the licensure system to say that the people that designed that bridge were competent to design that bridge. So that's that little bit of a separation, which I think is why so many civil engineers are licensed in, in comparison to you know percentages as compared to some of the other disciplines. You were mentioning earlier that there's like a legal aspect to, you know, when you get your PE license and yeah, you were mentioning the like stamping various like blueprints and um, design work. And I remember when I had to get a patio done, you know, I had to get it designed and approved by the city. And yeah, I had to get a, a civil engineer to stamp the, the design work. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the legal aspects um, that come along with, with the PE license. Yeah. So it, as, as I pointed out, a lot of times, and and I've and I heard this when again, kind of harping back to some yesteryear. Some people would ask me, or students would ask me, you know, should I take this FE exam and pursue licensure, or should I maybe get a master's degree or a PhD or something like that? And my answer was always, you can do both. They're not different things. Getting your professional engineering license is it's it's a legal thing. It is a document that is basically handed to you by someone that says you're competent to practice and you're not going to impact or adversely impact the health, safety and welfare of the public. So it is a it is a very much legal thing, which means that in turn, when you uh, it's regulated, it's it. That means that there is a group of regulators in each individual state who are essentially looking to make sure that you don't do something that is either ethically wrong or nefarious or just incompetent. And if you do, they can take your license away from you. They can fine you. There's a lot of things that can happen from that per perspective because it is a legal requirement that is handled legislatively. So each individual state has a board of engineers and surveyors, or could be a board of engineers and a board of surveyors, and sometimes architects are included with them, sometimes geologists, I think like in the state of California, it's the engineers, uh, surveyors, and geologists. Geologists are all part of one umbrella organization, but it is that right of that particular group to oversee the those that are licensed within those professions, and can, you know, like I said, could remove your license uh, if you do something unethical or incompetent, and also could have uh, any kind of fine attached to it. In other episodes of this podcast, I've had people recommend that students should, you know, they, even if they have a, they're pretty sure about what area they want to work in, they should just go get their FE exam, you know, at the end of their education, just so they can have it because you never know where life's going to take you. And it sounds like that's something that you would recommend as well. Yeah, that that would probably be part of that same pitch that when we were doing like doing some school visits, and I still do it today um, with students that if I'm ever meeting with any students is you, you really don't know which way your, your uh, career path is going to go. And having either the FE out of the way or even going and taking the PE exam uh, and getting licensed, you just never know which way your career is going to turn out. And in my 20-something years of working for NCWS, I've heard you know, either horror stories, war stories, whatever the way you want to put it, 
people call and it's like, you know what, when I was 20 and now I'm 50, I, I didn't know I needed to take this exam. And, and now if I want to, you know, do some consulting after retirement, I'm having to take these exams. Nobody, and I feel nobody is probably a general term, a, a big, you know, kind of generalization, I guess, really loves to take an exam, right? I mean, you know that, right? I mean, I don't like them. Nobody likes them. But I still feel like I would have rather, I'm glad I took those exams when I was in my 20s and not in my 50s. So I uh, I do, I do feel like you never know how your career path is going to turn. So that just gives you an option that uh, on the table in, in the event, you know, you something happens and you want to change career paths. That would be very hard for me to even think about going back to school for four plus years to get an undergrad degree again. <laughs> no kidding. Well, Davey, uh, thank you so much for giving up part of your day to day to to talk about professional licensure. And you provide a lot of very useful information about the entire process of what it's like to go to become professionally licensed. And I'm sure any students listening to this podcast will have a much better idea of what they'd be getting into about the importance of this. And you know, hopefully a few of them will be inspired to say, ah, I'll just get it while I'm uh, at the end of my engineering education. If someone wants to learn more about professional licensure, uh, what can they do? Where can they go? Yeah, so the NCES website has a lot of information and uh, it, it, it's, it's broken down um, into information about each individual exam plus other services that NCES offers. Uh, and all of, like I said, all of those surface services are to help facilitate licensure for engineers and surveyors across the country. So the website's just www.nces.org, uh, ncws.org. A lot of information can be found there, whether it's about sample exams or whether you're wanting to register for the exams, uh, whether you're trying to establish um, your, your what, I, what we call our record on file, anything like that can be found on the NCWS website, as well as more information about the general licensure process and the steps that you would need to go through um, to become licensed. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Uh, I enjoyed it. I'd like to once again thank Davey McDowell for providing an overview of what professional licensure is all about and why it can be important for many engineers. In the show notes, I've placed a link to the NCEES website where you can learn more about professional licensure. Before I go, I'd like to mention that if you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways to support it. You can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast apps such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Spotify, and many others. You can rate the podcast and leave comments on whatever app you use to listen to the podcast. And finally, you can help spread the word about the podcast by telling your friends and family or anyone else you think that might be interested in this podcast. If you have any comments about the episode, feel free to email me at tesepodcast at gmail.com, and I'll place the email address in the show notes. I'll personally read each email and try my best to respond to them all. Take care, everyone, and goodbye for now.